You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. So today we're starting a series called Rubicon. And as I said in the intro, the, the Rubicon River is a river that divided the Roman Republic from this northern province. And Julius Caesar, uh, he had been called back to Rome by Pompey and he was going to face charges of treason because he had raised up this army. And he has this, this standing army that was supposed to disband and he hadn't. And he was called back and so he's, literally on the banks of the Rubicon River, trying to decide, what do I do? And if he crosses the river with this army, it means civil war. And he's standing on the banks and he has to make this decision. He knows that if he goes across, that it's gonna change everything. And I can't help but think that you and I might be in the same place, that you and I are standing on the banks of the Rubicon and we are looking across this river at a future that could be, at a future that should be, but it's not for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of our own comfort. Maybe because of our own safety, we think it's better if I just stay here and what I know. Even though crossing this river could be painful, it could cost us something, it could change everything in our lives, we're still resistant, we still wait, we still hold back. And I love people who are totally committed to things. Um, I love people who are just a little neurotic about things. Like they love things so much, it makes you a little uncomfortable. Like, have you ever met somebody who does CrossFit before? It's like, you like exercise a little too much, okay? Like there's something wrong. Have you ever met somebody who just changed to becoming a vegan? And they're very excited about being a vegan, right? There's lots of different things we get excited about, that we're passionate about, that we're committed to. And, and this is one of the reasons I love Jesus is because he was totally committed. There was no wishy-washy bone in this man's body. He was committed. And so I wanna look at today, just in the next few minutes we've got, just some things that Jesus was totally committed to. So let me start the list with this one. Jesus is totally committed to people. He's totally committed to people. He loves people. He, he didn't think of himself. He put others first in his life. In Mark chapter 10, verse 41, it says, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. And the reason they were indignant is because James and John had asked Jesus privately, hey, when you ascend to the throne, can we sit on either side of you? They were asking like, can we be vice king when you're the king? Can we be like, we want the places of authority. And the other disciples were, they were ticked. They were not happy about it. And it says, so Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. He said, the world's kingdom is not gonna act like our kingdom. This kingdom is gonna look different. Whoever wants to be the leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the son of man came came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. He said, if there was anyone who deserved to be served in this life, it's me. But I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve others. Why? Because Jesus was totally committed to people. He wanted to serve others. He wanted to bless others. In Matthew chapter 11 and also in Luke chapter seven, Jesus is described as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
And this is not a complimentary title, by the way, because tax collectors were not uh, the most popular people in the world, even in our world today. How many of you guys are excited about the IRS? Is anybody excited? They're like, yes, IRS, come on. How many of you are excited about writing a check for your taxes to the IRS here in the next week or two? Nobody, do you know why? Because we don't want to give any more of our money away than we have to. I don't know anybody who's like, I love the IRS so much, I'm giving them extra this year, right? Because it's like, well, I want to keep my money. Now imagine this. What if the IRS agent who was responsible for collecting your taxes was actually your brother or your sister? And not only did they collect the taxes that you owed, they actually charged you more and then they kept the difference for themselves, you could imagine how they wouldn't be very popular with you, right? They probably would not be very high on your Christmas card list this next year, would they? You'd be frustrated with them. And this is what happened in the first century. Uh, Jewish people were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes for the Romans, but what they would do is they would collect more than was owed and then they would take the difference for themselves. They would get rich off of their countrymen and they were not popular. They, they were not they were not welcomed in polite society. And so when Jesus was called a friend to tax collectors and sinners, this was a derogatory statement. But this is why I love Jesus, because Jesus would rather help people in need than impress people in power. For us, we live the opposite. Many of us would rather impress people in power than help people in need. But Jesus didn't care about that at all. He didn't care about the people in authority. He cared about the people in need. And he said, I wanna help those in need even if it costs me something. Because he was totally committed to people. There's a story in Luke chapter five where Jesus, um, he, he's calling his disciples and there's one particular man, he's a tax collector. He's called Levi in Luke chapter five, but he's also called Matthew. And he calls Matthew to come follow him, which was a scandalous turn for Jesus to call a tax collector to be a disciple. And so Jesus calls him and he leaves behind his whole life. He says yes to Jesus, leaves behind his old life and follows him. And they have a party that night at Matthew's house. He's like, I'm so excited, I wanna invite my friends. And if you're a tax collector, your friends are tax collectors. And he invites all of his tax collector friends. And the religious people blow a gasket. They're so upset. And, and they say, why would he go to the house of such scum? That's literally what they say in Luke chapter five. But Jesus didn't care. It didn't bother him. Because Jesus's attitude was, I'm going to love people as if my reputation has already been ruined. I'm gonna love people as if my reputation has already been ruined. He didn't care what people thought about him. He didn't care what important people thought. He cared about loving, hurt people. He cared about helping people, why? Because he was totally committed to people. This is who he was. In Philippians chapter two, Paul writes to the Philippian church and says this, talking about Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position as a slave and was born of a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. See, Jesus cared about people so much. He was so committed to people that he willingly humbled himself to live a human life like you and I, to experience what we experience and know what we know, feel what we feel. And I'm grateful he did. But part of that commitment to us took him ultimately to the cross. 
So what we see is number two, Jesus is totally committed to the cross. He's totally committed to the cross. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus uh, has finished dinner with the last supper with his disciples. Judas has left to go betray him. And Jesus and his disciples have gone to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And so here they are in the garden and they don't even know what they're praying for. But they're like, why are we having a late night prayer meeting, Jesus? Like we all just ate where we want to nap, right? And they were all falling asleep because they had no idea what was coming, but Jesus did. And he, he was feeling the pressure of it. So he asked them to pray with him. And so they're in the garden. And this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 22, verse 41. It says, he walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down to pray. And this is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yes, uh, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. He says, okay, God, I know what I'm in store for. I know what I signed up for. But if there's any other way for, for the good to happen, that you want to happen, besides my suffering, let's do that. <laughs> I wanna sign up for that plan instead, okay? If we have another plan that does not involve my suffering, can we do that one instead? That's what I want. But, not my will, but your will. And this is what he says. If your will involves suffering, I'll do it. If your will takes me to the cross, I'll do it. If your will involves my death, I'll do it. Because although Jesus was totally committed to the cross, he was really totally committed to God's will. He said, God, whatever you will, I'll do it. I trust you. Even if it means my suffering, even if it means my pain, even if it means my death, I'm willing to do that. So if you're totally committed to the cross, why would you pray, please don't make me go to the cross? It's because Jesus understood the suffering of the cross. The cross was reserved for slaves and pirates and enemies of the, of the Roman Empire. Um, it was the worst of the worst. The dregs of society are the people that were crucified. You knew you were bad if you got crucified. People of noble status would have never, ever been crucified. Um, they would have had to worry about it, almost regardless of their crime, because it was a punishment reserved for the worst of the worst. It was such a heinous punishment that on the very rare occasion women were crucified, they wouldn't crucify them normally face out. They would turn them toward the cross because they, didn't, they wanted to keep them from having the shame of having to look at their tormentors in the eye and look at the crowds in the eye. So they would turn women to the cross because they didn't want them to have to deal with that kind of shame. See, the cross wasn't just a death sentence, but it was intended to torture and utterly humiliate the person involved. Uh, it, it was designed to make the condemned person as vulnerable as possible. And part of that was that they were stripped naked and they were beaten to the point of, of reaching a state of shock because of their blood loss. They were whipped with a whip with, it had a wooden handle. It could have been around 10 inches long and this whip was leather and at the end of the whip, it would have stone or bone or glass woven in so that when the person was scourged, it would rip the flesh. It wouldn't just hit the flesh, but it would actually tear the flesh. And they would, historically, they would do this 39 lashes is what they would inflict on the person being scourged. I read an article recently that said that if someone endured that, it could take up to 2,000 stitches to repair the damage to their back. So at this point, they are losing blood profusely. 
They're in a state of shock because of the blood loss. And after they've been scourged, they are forced to take a placard and write their name and their offense on it so everyone can see what it is. Because ultimately when they're crucified, they'll hang that plaque on the cross so people will know who they are and what they're guilty of. After this, they were forced to carry the cross beam of the cross to the point of their execution. Now this is another point of shame because They're taking someone who's been condemned to die and they're forcing them to carry the implement of their own death to their execution spot. And this crossbeam could have been as many as 75 pounds, which doesn't sound like a ton of weight, but if you have been beaten to the place where your body is in shock, if your back is raw and this beam has splinters and jagged edges and you're trying to carry this, it is no easy task. And for most of the condemned, they would make them walk about a quarter mile to the point of their execution. But for Jesus, they went a little further and they wanted to parade him through the town. So there are some estimates that say he might've walked as far as two miles from the place of his scourging to the point of his death and and, and crucifixion. He was carrying his cross. He was bleeding and battered and naked. On top of this, he had a a, a crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And these thorns weren't the run-of-mill thorns like you'd see on a rose bush in your yard. Uh, These thorns were between one and two inches long and they would press down into the brow of our Savior. Blood came out. There was no level of comfort in his life at all. When he arrives at the place of his eventual crucifixion, he wasn't done you might have heard that he was nailed to the cross and technically speaking, this is correct, but they didn't use nails. Um, They actually used spikes and these spikes were almost a half inch in diameter and they were square and they would drive these spikes that were between five and nine inches, depending on the composition and what they were made of. They would drive these spikes through the wrists of those that are being crucified. And they would drive them through the feet as well. Jesus probably had four spikes driven through his hands or his wrists and his feet. And they did this intentionally because they were trying to avoid spots where the person could bleed out. And they wanted to find places where there were nerve clusters so they could inflict maximum damage. They wanted to keep them alive and let them suffer as long as possible. So after they were crucified, they were left until they died. It could be a few hours, it could be days. And the Roman soldiers weren't allowed to leave until the person had died. So sometimes the Roman soldier would speed the process along as we see in the story of Jesus' crucifixion when they pierced his side. Sometimes birds of prey would help the process along as well. The person was left for the elements, was left for animals. After they had been shamed and embarrassed and beaten and tortured and ultimately killed, this is what the experience was. In the English language, they actually invented a word to describe this because there was no word to describe this process. And it's where we get the word excruciating today. 
The word excruciating literally means of the cross because there is nothing to describe the torment of the cross in our normal language. This is what Jesus did. This is what he endured. He did it willingly because he was totally committed to the cross, but he was totally committed to God's will. God, I'll do whatever you want, even if it takes me down that path. But I'm grateful that the story doesn't end there, that Jesus was totally committed to the cross, but he was also totally committed to rise. And the story of Jesus is incomplete if we don't talk about his resurrection, that he didn't just die a death, an atoning sacrificial death for us, but he also rose from the grave. He said in Luke chapter nine, verse 22, He's telling his disciples this. He said, the son of man must suffer many terrible things. He'll be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He will be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So he calls us. He's literally calling his shot. He's letting them know, here's what's going to happen. But they have no idea what he's talking about. They think he's talking in metaphors. They don't understand. Then you fast forward to Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, this is Easter Sunday morning. This is, the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, Sunday morning, the women are heading to Jesus' tomb to tend to his body, and they arrive at the tomb, and the stone is rolled away, and the body is gone. There is no body, and they are standing there scratching their heads, trying to figure out what do we make of this. And this is what it says in verse 4. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. Verse five says, the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. The men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, the son of man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. <laughs> you ever tell your kids something and you know that they aren't listening? And then later, you say something about it, and they're like, you never told me that. You're like, oh. And that's where you wish, like, you know, you could just play the recording back and go, yeah, I, I did tell you that. This is that moment. Jesus said, hey, here's what's gonna happen. And they're like, okay. <laughs> like, they get their earbuds in, they're texting, whatever. You know, they're not paying attention. And then they show up, and they're like, where did he go? And the angel's like, he told you what was going to happen. You weren't paying attention, Right? Jesus said it. Here's what's going to happen. He's alive. And I'm so grateful that today there is no tomb for us to visit that holds the body of Jesus. There is no grave. There is no headstone that we can go to because he's alive. Now, I've talked to people who question the historic veracity of Jesus' resurrection. Um, and it's, it's interesting because after Jesus ascended into heaven, the gospel spread throughout the known world very, very quickly. It's, it's shocking how quickly it spread throughout the world. Paul talks about it, uh, like 40 years after this, he talks about it and says that the gospel has gone to every corner of the known world at that point, basically. It, it's, it had gone to Africa, it had gone into Asia, it had gone deep into Europe. I mean, it was amazing how far, far the gospel had gone. And the reason that the gospel had gone so far is because there were 500 witnesses to a living, breathing Jesus after his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven. There were 40 days. And Jesus was seen and heard and talked to 
by over 500 witnesses. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, some of you are questioning this stuff about the resurrection. And so in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, go talk to the people who saw him alive. Go talk to them. Some of them are still living. They can tell you, basically. So he's telling them, this is, this is real. If you don't believe it, go talk to them. And here's the implication. It's important for us to understand Jesus couldn't just die for us. He has, had to raise from the dead. And here's the implication. If Jesus really was alive, there's only one thing that could mean. And that one thing is he is God. Because I've got bad news for you. If you are breathing in and out right now, there will probably come a day where you will no longer be breathing in and out. None of us get out of life alive. There will be a day when I will stop breathing and my life will end on this planet. And my girls are gonna be so sad and they're gonna come visit my grave every day probably, every single day. They're gonna make a pilgrimage to the Mel Massengill Memorial Cemetery and come and find, right, a big statue of me, probably in a hoodie. <laughs> Let's be honest. Because that's where my body will be laid to rest. But there is no memorial for Jesus because there is no body to find. See, you and I can die, but you and I can't raise ourselves from the dead. Jesus rose from the grave and he did it because he's God. And this is so important because the resurrection is evidence that what he did on the cross is sufficient. That's why he said it is finished. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, the, the resurrection of Jesus is evidence of his divinity, of his deity, that he is God. So with all this in mind, that he is God incarnate, that he is totally committed to people, he is totally committed to the cross, he's totally committed to the will of God, he's totally committed to rise. This begs a question for us. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he subject himself to all this? And the answer is this, that Jesus is totally committed to you. Hmm. Jesus is totally committed to you. Whether you have never been to church in your life and this is the first time, or whether you come once a year on Easter, I'm so glad you're here. Or maybe you come every single Sunday or Wednesday or Saturday night to church. I'm so glad you do. You still need to hear this. The son of the living God, the king of kings and lord of lords is totally committed to you because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He's crazy about you. The Bible says the thoughts of God about us are more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach. That's how much he thinks about you. He can't get you off of his mind because he loves you and he cares about you. This is why he would do what he did because of you. He's totally committed to you. Hebrews 12, two says this, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What this means is he's the one who gave us faith, the ability to believe, and he's the one who matures our faith, brings our faith to full maturity, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. Some theologians believe that the joy set before him was heaven, that he knew I get to go back to heaven so I can endure this pain and it'll be good. But why would Jesus, who was God incarnate, leave heaven to come to earth, to go to the cross, so he could go back to heaven? I really do believe that that, that's a portion of it, but that is incomplete. Because I really believe in my heart that the joy that was set before him was you and I. That when he is going to the cross, he is thinking about you and I. He can endure the pain and the suffering because of what it produces in us and what it brings us. That his death brings life to us. His suffering brings peace to us. So for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It says despising the shame. I don't know about you, when I think of the word despise, I think of hate. Like if I despise something, like, oh, I despise the Cleveland Browns, right? It means we hate the Cleveland Browns. We all hate the Cleveland Browns, it's too easy. Oh, I despise that woman. What you're, what you're probably saying is I hate that person. But here's the thing. Um, hate is not the opposite of love. Love and hate are actually closely associated. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is disdain. And what disdain is, is the absence of thought of someone. So if you look at this actual word despise, it means to despise, disdain, think little of or nothing of. See, I care so little about you, I don't even think about you. You don't even cross my mind ever. I don't think about you because you matter so little. That would be somebody would say if they felt the opposite of love for you. Now listen, this is what it says about Jesus with his shame, despising the shame. So what does this mean? He didn't think anything at all about the shame. And I don't know how that's humanly possible because did you hear what I described earlier? He was marched through the streets naked and beaten and battered and bloodied and he didn't think at all about the shame. How is that possible? It's possible because he's totally committed to you. He wasn't thinking about the shame in that moment. Do you know what he was thinking of? He was thinking of you. He was thinking about the life that you could have because of what he was enduring, because of what he was suffering through. He was thinking about what you could have, what you could be, what you could become because of what he was doing. He was willing to do it because he was totally committed to you. And here's what I know. In Romans chapter five, Paul talks to the Romans and he says, hey, maybe you would die for a really good person. You might lay down your life for somebody else if they could cure cancer or do something really good, but who would die for a bad person? Nobody. And he said, but God shows us his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what he's saying is Christ didn't love you, he wasn't totally committed to you on your best day when you showed up to Easter Sunday morning wearing your very best outfit. By the way, this is one of my very best outfits. It is a button-up collar shirt, jacket with no zipper. I mean, I'm wearing Nikes, but they're my good Nikes. God's not impressed by that, did you know that? 
Jesus doesn't go, hey, I'm totally committed for you if you get your life together. If you stop with this and this and this, and if you look good, and if you come to church all the time, then I'm totally committed to you. What this verse is saying is on your worst day, when you've done the thing that you hope nobody ever finds out about, the thing you're most ashamed of, the thing you would love to forget, that's the day Jesus saw you and found you lovely and beautiful and worth dying for. And he was totally committed to you in that moment. On your worst day. So the question we have to ask is this, what are you totally committed to? What are you totally committed to? Because maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's success. I don't know what it is, but here's what I know. None of those things are gonna produce life in you. None of those things are gonna produce real joy in you. Think about the question that the angel asked the ladies at the tomb. He said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And I'll ask you the same question. Because some of us, we're totally committed to things that are not bad things, but they're dead things. They're things that can't produce life in us. And we're committed to the wrong things. You're trying to find life in a graveyard. It's not gonna happen. So, so we have to be committed to the right things. So what are the right things? And here's what Jesus said. I read Luke 9, 22 to you earlier. Let me read verses 23, 24 and 25. He says, Jesus talking, he says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try hanging on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? Here's what he says. Jesus says, hey, if you wanna be my follower, you've gotta totally commit. You've gotta give up your own way. You've gotta stop living your life for you. You gotta live your life for people and not yourself. He said, you gotta take up your cross. See, Jesus understood what he was saying here. The cross was intended to be a deterrent. The Roman soldiers or the Roman empire said, hey, uh, if you do what these people do, you're gonna get this too. There's a cross for you. And Jesus says, you've gotta take up your cross. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Do you know who I want as my followers? People who are willing to go, bring it on, Roman Empire. I'll go wherever I need to go. I'll do whatever I need to do because I'm totally committed to God. I'm totally committed to Jesus and I will follow him every step of the way. I will Follow the will of God, even if the will of God takes me to suffering, even if it takes me to the cross, even if it costs me my life, I'm committed to God's will. Then he says, follow me. And what he's saying is, go where I go. Step where I step, say what I say, do what I do. That's what he's inviting us into. That's what he's calling us into. And this is what produces real life in us. Because when we find this, we find life. His death produces life in us. So why are you looking among the dead for something, someone who's alive? Hey, right now I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Colin in Blairsville. He's gonna close out our time together there and he'll give you a chance to respond. I love you guys more than you know and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. You guys have a happy birthday down there. God bless you. So today, you might be here 
And maybe you're just here because it's Easter. Somebody drug you to church. I want you to know it's not an accident. God knew you were gonna be here. I believe that God set an appointment with you for this very day, long ago, so you could have an encounter with him. Maybe you're here and you're one of those people who say, Mel, I've, I've been looking for life in dead places, but I haven't found it and I need it. I'm done with that. I'm done trying to find water in dry wells. I'm done looking for life where I can only find death. Not even in bad things, in good things, but good things can't produce the life of Christ. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Mel, I believe I'm a Christian, but I've never really totally committed to Jesus. I'm religious, I go to church. I know all the things to say and do. But you find yourself standing on the edge of the Rubicon River, looking across, thinking, what would it look like if I totally committed to Jesus? What would it look like if I gave up my own way, took up my cross daily and followed him? And I wanna challenge you, take that step. It is worth it. It'll be the greatest decision you've ever made in your life. And I wanna give both of those groups of people an opportunity to respond. So if you would, bow your head and let's pray together. God, thank you for loving us. We do not deserve it. We have not earned it. We are broken and we are flawed, but I'm grateful that you love us anyway. So God, I pray that you would move in this place, that you'd speak into our hearts, that you would draw us to you. I pray that we would see your goodness and your kindness. We would feel your mercy and your love in this place and that's what would draw us to you. And God, I pray that you would minister in those that maybe have been looking for life in dead places. They've been looking for something to bring them life, but they just find themselves frustrated because all they find is death. I pray for those that are here today that would say, I, I wanna totally commit. I'm tired of being halfway. I'm tired of living for myself. I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to totally commit to God's will and God's plan. I'm ready to totally commit to Jesus Christ no matter where it takes me. Lord, let today be the day we say yes to you. So God, have your way with us in these next few moments. Now with nobody looking around, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if you'd say to me today, Mel, I know, I know I'm not walking with God. I know I'm not serving him. I've been looking for life in dead places. And today I wanna find the life that only Jesus holds. Or maybe you're here and you're that person standing on the edge of the river saying, I need to totally commit because I've only been partially committed. I've, I've been coming to church I've been saying the right things, but I'm not totally committed to Christ. And today I wanna to totally commit. If either one of those things are you, I wanna pray for you. And if you wanna be included in that prayer, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? And you'd say, Mel, pray for me, include me in that prayer. Yeah, thank you. On my left, I see you. I see another hand on my left, two, three, four. Yeah, thank you. You can put your hand down. Who else would say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Yeah, thank you in the center section, I see you. Yeah, up in the balcony, I see a couple hands up there. Praise God, praise the Lord. Who else would say, Mel, that's me, include me in that prayer today. Yeah, thank you on my right. I see you, ma'am. Awesome. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else wanna join these? You say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Yeah, thanks, sir, on my right. Yeah, thank you up on the balcony. Awesome. 
Romans chapter 10, verse nine says, if you believe in your, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer out loud together. We're gonna confess Jesus as Lord and, and we're gonna pray this out loud. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but these, is, this is, these aren't my words, these are your words. This is your prayer. You're praying this to God. So I want you to pray this prayer with me and we're gonna pray it to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I am totally committed to you and to your will. Use my life for your glory. I'm never turning back to my old way or my old life. But from now on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause. If you prayed that prayer today, scripture says you're a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. We wanna help you take the next step in your faith journey. And so please help us help you. Whether you prayed that prayer for the first time or you're praying that prayer as a prayer of rededication, we wanna help you. So please let us know about your decision today. You can either fill out the card in the seat back in front of you, fill that out, take it to the info center when we finish here in just a minute. Uh, they would love to give you a new Bible and help you get pointed in the right direction. If you'd prefer to, you can simply text Summit PA to the number 94,000. Let us know about your decision today. Follow the prompts and let us know. And we're gonna reach out to you in the next couple of days to help you begin to grow in your faith. And we're gonna get you some information in the mail, get you connected to resources. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for making the greatest decision in your life. One more thing I wanna encourage you to do. There are, there's a map out in our lobby and our team put that together this last week. And there are some slips of paper like this one. It just says, I'm committing to, and we're not asking you to sign this. We're not asking you to do anything public with this uh, where it's gonna point you out. But what we wanna do is give you a symbolic gesture that you can take and some of our folks already have where you can say, here's what I'm totally committing to. I'm crossing the Rubicon in this area of my life. I'm totally committing to Jesus. I'm totally committing to new life. I'm totally committing to whatever it is. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna ask you to put this down because maybe it's I'm totally committing to, to health in my marriage. I'm totally committing to uh, whatever, being a good dad, being the, the mom God called me to be. Whatever it is, we want you to write that down and just pin it on the board um, on the right side of the Rubicon, symbolically saying I'm crossing the Rubicon and I'm never going back. Guys, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Thank you for being here on your Easter Sunday. It means more to me than I can possibly tell you. We've seen God do some amazing things this weekend and God's not through, this is the beginning. Here's what's gonna happen right now. Our worship team's gonna play one final song. Please don't slip out. I know you got a ham in the oven, it will be okay. We wanna sing one final song and let's reflect on what God spoke to us today. And while we're singing, our prayer team and some of our staff is gonna be available to pray for you here at the front of this room. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, no matter how big or small, we would be honored to pray with you before you go. So please feel free to step out, find one of our team during this final song, or even as we dismiss in just a moment, our team will be available to pray for you. Guys, I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Stay to your feet. Let's worship one more time. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.